1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network. This is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert, and today I'm joined by Dr. John O'Brien, the author of States of Intoxication The Place of Alcohol in Civilization. John's a sociologist in Ireland with interests in alcohol and other psychoactive substances. He studies consumption, sociological theory, classical philosophy, as well as Irish history and society. His recent book, States of Intoxication, offers broad perspectives on alcohol use, drawing on approaches from both anthropological research and historical sociology. He shows that the use of alcohol or other substances is universal across human societies and indeed has tended to be seen as rather unproblematic or even a sacred aspect of culture often used in a highly ritualized context. O'Brien also makes the case that alcohol has been very important in the process of state formation, not only as a crucial source of revenue, but also in the formation of political communities. It's great to have him here. So, John, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe some of the steps that put you on the pathway to this project?
0: Yeah, Um, well... My background is that I'm a sociologist and I completed my PhD about, I suppose, kind of six or seven years ago and that was on the topic of alcohol and the book really comes out of my PhD research and um, in terms of my professional life, what I do is I I lecture full-time, so I'm working with the Irish Prison Service, lecturing criminology and penology with them and that's, you know, very interesting for me in terms of my interest with alcohol because, of the association of addiction with crime and disorder and deviance and things like that. And I also work with an NGO in Ireland called Social Justice Ireland. And that's an NGO that's very much involved in um, social justice issues, obviously. And again, the link between addiction and marginality and inequality and things like that. So that's my my background. Um, So you have a
1: few uh, irons in the fire, so to speak.
0: Yeah, too many irons in the fire. It's always kind of a challenge to do research while you're teaching, because here in Ireland, like we have quite heavy teaching loads. So I dream of a time in my life where I'll have days and days and days to nothing but read and <laughs> work myself in my, in my studies.
1: So the focus of this book, um, which I recommend to listeners, um, is alcohol, and I suppose to a lesser extent you tackle addiction. And recovery. You make the claim that the history of psychoactive substances, like alcohol, is the history of taxation. And so what do you mean by this?
0: Yeah, I mean, title of the book is states intoxication. And I suppose what I'm trying to get at with that title is the idea that we often think about states, governments, as being very sober entities, they're very rational And also, I think we often think of them as the thing that will somehow protect society from the pernicious effects of of alcohol and psychoactive substances. And really, the title is trying to show that, in fact, it's very surprising that the opposite is actually quite true. That states have very much been based on the promotion of intoxication, the promotion of excess and consumption, and this is really because of the revenue um, revenue that states derive from these from these substances. In the contemporary era we we know that, you know, these are the old reliables, like cigarettes and alcohol are the old reliables that so will always be a source of um of income for states. And but having said that, in the contemporary era, the the amount of kind of uh, of taxation that states get from from alcohol and other psychoactive substances, it is declining and declining. I mean at the moment in European Union countries, it really wouldn't be any higher than 3% of all of the tax revenue generated by states. When you look at it in a broader perspective, you know, and look at the nighttime economy and, you know, bars and nightclubs and so on, it might be around the level of 3% of total revenue. So it's not very big, but it's, you know, still significant. Really what the book is looking at, though, is the early modern period as this crucial historical era where... It's really to a remarkable extent, and I don't think many people have actually realize this: the extent to which states relied on on alcohol and other psychoactive substances. So, you know, again, we might know this more externally. So, we think about, say, Britain and the opium monopoly, and how its kind of colonial activity in Asia was very much funded through through um, opium, and then we think about obviously the colonies of this in, in the Americas very much kind of funded through tobacco. And, but then, really internally, it's alcohol that kind of drives the early modern states. And as I said, the, the amount of the amount of uh, the percentage of the revenue that comes from this is really remarkable. I mean, oftentimes it, it's around thirty-three percent, forty percent in some areas and some places. It can be as high as sixty percent. So it's just a really, really important basis that states stand on. That's an incredibly high figure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's because of the nature of taxation, because in our era, um, obviously, our economies are much more differentiated, they're much more complex, and taxation has become much more complex. So, you know, the great majority of taxation will come from corporation tax, and it will come from income tax and um, value added tax. But when states are smaller and when, when economies are simpler, the taxation is really based on excise. And it's based on consumption tax. So it's that that kind of really makes alcohol such an important important basis. And also that alcohol was a much bigger part of the economy. Yeah. That'll be today. I mean, it was really the only luxury goods that people had access to. It wasn't only a luxury good. It was also a staple good And that was just a major part of people's everyday lives. And then just an, an enormous aspects of the trade, you know, much more than it is today, but even though it still is very significant
1: today, So let's just take a step back for a second here. For some listeners, they might not fully grasp what the early modern period would be. So what kind of, what years are we talking about?
0: Well, yeah, so I suppose it's that you're talking about the 16th century at the beginning and then really moving in, into, I would when I say modernity, I suppose I'll be talking about the, the late 19th century, And twentieth century, so the early modern period is really when you see this kind of big expansion of states. So the medieval era is kind of quite stable; it's quite static. But when you go into the sixteen hundreds and particularly the seventeen hundreds, you get this huge increase in the pace of of life, economies, of the expansion of states and the expansion of state power, its ability to wage wars. And it's really this era where you see this this uh, this connection very strongly.
1: One thing that jumped out at me was the way you focus in on certain traditions and rituals related to drinking and sort of the, the incredible importance uh of value of some of these rituals. Uh, so can you maybe just explain some of the traditions uh, that were intimately related to, to booze, to alcohol, and, uh, and I guess why they matter in a sense?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, I suppose i just maybe explain the book a little bit more, to make that clear about what I'm trying to argue, because I suppose the book is trying to bring two different literatures together. You've got one literature, which is the historical literature, and that's really looking at, you know as I was talking about there, revenue, this alcohol as a source of revenue, and then moving on to temperance movements as a response to that when this becomes really kind of too extreme and has a lot of social costs. But the other literature that I'm trying to connect that with is, is anthropological literature. It was something that I became more and more interested in in the course of my studies for my PhD and in the research for this book because um, what I found was there was a group of anthropologists who had gone to non-Western contexts and they were there to study various different things. I mean, it could have been the political structure of a community or whatever it was, leadership or way of life. But they began to notice this thing and kind of independently note that it was a remarkable thing, and they made these claims that these small-scale non-Western societies lacked alcohol problems. That's a really, really big claim, because when we think about our society, we think about you know the demon drink, You know, we have the legacy temperance movements, we, we also have this ambivalence about it, and we see it as a dangerous substance, like as an inherently dangerous substance. So this claim that the apologists were making was kind of really striking and really kind of hit me and intrigued me. So that's where the interest in ritual comes from, because what their emphasis is, is that in our culture, in modern Western cultures, we tend to have a very individualistic approach towards the substance and its consumption. I mean, of course, these are commodities on the marketplace. In right, So like we're individual consumers, we purchase it, we kind of, we have a sense of our liberty to consume how we desire to consume. But this, of course, is a very modern notion of the self and the way we should behave. What the anthropologists in these contexts are looking at is something totally different, is people who are really completely immersed in, completely, I shouldn't say that, but they're immersed in a community. And they're immersed in kind of like a ritual framework of life. And I think the reason why they were making this claim that there's an absence of, of problems. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk about this later on, whether we can totally trust what they're saying, but I think <laughs> they're saying is that, you know, our behavior, we are responsible for our own behavior in a Western context, right? It really comes down to us and our ability to self-regulate, but in those cultures people's behavior is being externalized is being outsourced into the community and you have a very strong ritual framework that structures people's behavior in a way that means that you actually don't have the liberty to get into these kind of like terrible ruts of behaviors that can be very destructive you know and you know I would make the argument that the idea that an individual can be kind of self-controlling can really have this kind of self-mastery where they can you know, keep problematic behaviors at a distance. I think that can happen for some people, but I think on an overall level, it's a lot to ask of a person. Mm. And when we look at these these other contexts, you do have this kind of outsourcing of control into the community and into a ritual framework. And mm. um, there's a very famous study by a guy called Dwight B. Heath on this, of the Canva people who live in, in uh, Bolivia. And what he was uh, looking at was their drinking behavior. And they were a remarkable people because they drank probably one of the most powerful uh, alcohols, beverages that people drink. It's 89%. So it was a spirit at 89% um, alcohol content, which is, you know, pretty pretty strong. Yep. What he saw was that in their, ritual, in their rituals, they drank and they drank the drunkenness. But then outside of the rituals... There was no dependence. There wasn't alcoholism. You didn't have. You didn't really even have a concept of addiction. And the idea was then that this is because of the ritual framework. The ritual framework is so strong and so dominant over the individual that it uh, it controls their consumption. And I think you know this might seem very foreign, but I think you can still see a legacy in the modern world. Also, I mean, if you think about Mediterranean societies. Sure. You know, of course they're individualizing and their drinking behavior is kind of increasingly imitating north american and north european norms not really a good idea yeah <laughs> but you know they still have this legacy of you know there is a right way to do things there's a ritual framework there's a time there's a place you know there's stages that you should go through and all of that takes away this kind of like individual liberty which you know liberty sounds good but in fact, I think we should really see it as very ambivalent. So, I mean, that was my interest in, in rituals and the idea of the, the contribution that rituals can make.
1: It's really fascinating. I mean, ritual as regulation, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh,
0: I think it's a huge thing and that we should really think about it again, because I have a lot of conversations with public health researchers. And what I find just to distill everything that they say, I would say they have two messages one is that they want to provide people with better information so we can make more reasoned decisions. I mean, that's obviously a good thing. And they want to offer people behavioral skills. So, you know, you'll have this, you know, individual capacity for self-mastery. But I, and I'm not obviously disputing that in any way. But I think what's often left out of the conversation is that we actually could really use like a re-ritualization of social life and And it's not just in terms of alcohol and addiction. I think it's in terms of many, many behaviors that We have an awful lot of social problems because social life has become destructured. I mean, we just have to think of eating as an example, where we have an explosion of problems. I mean, Ireland, I'm from Ireland, and we're probably 25 years behind America in terms of the obesity epidemic. But in my own lifetime, you just see this, huge proliferation in eating problems and it's all to do with kind of the deritualization and the destructuring of, of eating and yeah, so I think it's a general phenomenon but it, it's a very powerful thing that I think should be introduced into the conversation
1: more and more Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are dedicated to rituals. Chapter 3 is about identity and chapter 4 is focused on decontrolling so can you say a little bit more about decontrolling? Yeah,
0: absolutely I mean, I think one of the kind of central things about any group is how do you allow them to have a, an acceptable or an enjoyable amount of emotional freedom. Right. And I think that's what rituals are about to say it's an extent where, you know, you call them like a controls, be controlling or controls, which is maybe I don't know if that's a good definition or not. <laughs> you know, people can just basically let loose. You know, it's you know, cultural remission or it's a timeout. And so this is obviously, I've been talking about rituals and their value, and that is one of the major values of rituals. I mean, on the one hand, what they do is, I think they're about identity. So rituals are these moments where people's identities are stamped. When you look at like how psychoactive substances and alcohol is used cross-culturally, you know, they are used to mark transitions. My, my uncle was a, was a Catholic priest. And he said that his job was hatching, matching, and dispatching. So it's, you know, it's birth, it's marriage, and it's death, right? Yeah. And, you know, when we think about the rituals that alcohol is associated with, they are these kind of transitional rituals where it's, you know, it's a seasonal transition, or it's the life transition of becoming an adult, or it's awake to mark a death, right? So it's about these kind of moments of transition where we um, think about the identity of the group or it might mark our individual transition, And in these moments, we have these features associated with that. And first of all, I guess, is you somehow separate from everyday ordinary life, right? Because you need to separate from the ordinary social structure. And oftentimes, that's exactly what alcohol and drugs are about. Because the minute you put a beer to your lips, you know, it's now even time, right? It's not anymore. It's marked that transition. And also... In these ritual frameworks, they're, they're very social, of course, and they're marked by kind of an intense feeling of community and brotherhood and uh, sorority and so on. But also, they're very much marked by kind of like leaving the normal roles and expectations of the social structure. And that's what I mean by this kind of controls, decontrolling of controls. But uh, I suppose the point that I really wanted to emphasize about this, this um, about rituals and their value is that. How is it that control, that decontrolling behavior doesn't become chaotic and harmful and dangerous and kind of counterproductive? And one of the things that I noticed in the anthropological literature about this is there's a very strong emphasis on kind of the enclosing of rituals in space and time. So that means that there's, there's certain spaces where behavior is appropriate. And inside of that, it's absolutely not appropriate And also you have times where it's appropriate and other times when it absolutely is not appropriate that's one feature another feature would be and i think this is the critical feature is masters of ceremony so when we think about say you know the symposiums of ancient greece you've got the symposiarch you have hosts you have the chief you have toastmasters you have publicans right? and all of these like very important figures for and their guides they guides in this kind of period of kind of anti-structure. And I think that's kind of interesting in the contemporary context of the de-ritualization that I've been talking about. Because when we look at kind of drinking occasions today, I would say kind of a classic feature of it is that they lack masters of ceremony. They lack kind of like the guides and the elder. And that means that people are very much kind of on their own.
1: So that, I guess, leads me to the next question about chapter five which you call the limits of ritual. Is this one of the the problems then is that there aren't guides in some rituals? Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think, I mean, it's a thing that really interested me or struck me, I suppose, when I was looking at the literature on contemporary drinking, because this emphasis on like ritual and a lot of the research on like what ritual is, it's used a a lot in these contemporary studies. And, it kind of a it, thing began nagging at me which is that you know I don't think we actually know anymore what a ritual is because we have I think we have like ritual-like behavior but it isn't actually ritual in itself and as you've mentioned there about you know the lack of master of ceremony I mean that's a really kind of critical thing if you don't have a master of ceremony it's only ritual-like it's not actually a ritual and um, so I mean the, the person who's a huge influence on me in this study is a guy called Victor Turner he's a very famous And social and cultural anthropologists and he was very interested in um, the hippies (laughs) he didn't like hippies uh, because he was looking at them as kind of a group of people who were you know rediscovering they thought they were rediscovering kind of tribal you know kind of traditional ways of behaving and he thought that they really didn't understand what they were doing because he thought that yeah, what their behavior was, it was it was it was ritual like, not actual ritual. It it didn't have the true value of ritual. And if I could just maybe try and kind of flesh that out a little bit. Yeah. What what I would say about contemporary rituals is that firstly, you would say that they're they're massively extended. So if you think about like a normal ritual that's marking a transition, so that would be perhaps two, three days right? Or perhaps like a week, it, it would be a certain kind of ritual period. When we think about kind of a key, uh, ritual transition in every culture, it's becoming an adult, and that's often very much wrapped up with alcohol and psychoactive substances. And rather than being like a three or four day ritual of a kind of celebration and separation from your old role. Now, you know, you can be transitioning to adulthood for, you know, potentially your entire life, but like maybe two decades. So it's a huge extension of ritual, which kind of drags out this kind of in-between, indeterminate period in people's lives where alcohol and psychoactive substances are important to a really great extent. And another kind of change is that in kind of traditional rituals, people are, you would say, like kind of like true participants in ritual.
1: So, John, there's got to be a sort of a specific or technical definition of the state. And I wonder if you could just walk us through that very quickly. Yeah,
0: so I would say that um, the state is like any other organization, but it has, I would say, two kind of specific things that set it apart. I would say, firstly, you have a monopoly of, of revenue. So the state is the only organization that can legitimately raise taxation. Unfortunately, we can't do that, we're not allowed. Um, also, it has monopoly of violence, so it's the only organization that can legitimately use force against um, against the populace. So I think, yeah, that's what set That is what how you would define a state. It has these two monopolies that set it apart as kind of the primal, the prime, primary organization within a society. And this is very important for alcohol, I think, because the monopoly of revenue and. Um, in order for a state to be successful, it has to maximize revenue. I've been talking about the early modern state, and the early modern state is—it's a war-making machine, in essence. It has very low involvement in kind of social in the social welfare system, and it's—it really has two 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 arms. It has an army, and it has a diplomatic corps, and these are both about war-making and maximizing the state's power. So. States are focused on maximizing revenue and alcohol and psychoactive substances have been very, very important for this. But I think what's really interesting is that these two elements of the state are in contradiction, I think, in reference to psychoactive substances. Because while on the one hand, the state is trying to maximize revenue, so it's trying to maximize consumption as much as it possibly can. On the other hand, it has a problem with the use of psychoactive substances in terms of its monopoly of violence. Because monopoly of violence is about kind of regulating and policing the behavior of its populace. It has to maintain order and control and peace within its within its territory. And psychoactive substances are very troubling in this regard because they are they're a type of occult practice. I mean, every... We think about, like, even... Think about Christianity and think about wine. Right, I mean, this is a very mild <laughs> type of psychoactive experience, but it's a, it's a central thing about like this community, right? The experience of fellowship and community through the consumption of wine in a meal is kind of a central thing. And if you look at political communities around the world and um, they're, they're associated with cafes, bars, taverns, and they're associated with particular types of, of substances. I mean, just again, think about counterculture movements. I think about its association with, with marijuana, if you think about, say, the cafes of Paris and the French Revolution. So yeah, so this is a problem for the state because on the one hand it's trying to promote consumption, and on the other hand it has an awful lot of, an awful lot of political communities that are rooted in the use of psychoactive substances which allows the, the, them to gain solidarity and uh, to symbolize themselves. So you have a bit of a contradiction here. I mean, if you look at the statistics on Russia and, you know, morbidity and mortality associated with alcohol, I mean it's really it's it really has a terrible record. And I think you have to look at this kind of historically to see where this came from because I mean it's it's not simply rooted. I mean, it is associated with the fall of communism and all of that, but and you know, how that kind of unsettled people's lives. But it's a very, very, very deep story. and. Um, before we get into it though, I should just say something about the the meaning of the of the chapter because the title of the chapter is I wanted to call it subversive states because you know we often think of subversion as being something that is against the state. So some kind of dissident group against the state. Right. The, the idea that the state actually is subversive itself, I think is an interesting idea. And I think it's very much it's very true when we um, when we when we think about it in terms of alcohol. And the reason why the states are subversive is because of the way that they undermine the ritual life of the community and how this kind of structures alcohol consumption. So, I mean, there's really nice studies of, of traditional, traditional inverted commas, Russian drinking culture before the state expanded. And this is even quite late. I mean, there's a really nice study of, of Russian drinking in the North, in a very isolated community. And the way that, you know, they drank kind of mild mild beverages, so not very high alcohol beverages, they didn't drink vodka, they drank in these kind of occasional rituals of transition, which I mentioned before, the alcohol was embedded in a whole range of other activities like dancing and walking and things yeah. like that. And the consumption was communal. And then in the 1960s, when the Russian state begins to encroach into the life of the of the community, in the space of a very short amount of years, drinking culture becomes destroyed, and the levels of harm become off the charts. And this is because I think of how states undermine and destroy the ritual structures that had, and um, that had controlled consumption and regulating. That's the subversion. That that's the subversion. Thing. Absolutely, yeah, and mm-hmm. and Russia. It's a very deep story. Uh, maybe I would just kind of take a bit of a bit of a segue, bit of a tangent into the UK for a second. If that's all right, because yeah. the thing that we would probably be very aware of in this regard is the gin epidemics, the gin epidemic of the 18th century, and this was a very similar story of a state attempting to maximise revenue by promoting consumption of a psychoactive substance. So the UK was trying to increase tax revenue. They promoted gin consumption. And we all know the story. We know Hogarth's kind of famous etchings of Gin Lane and all mm-hmm. kind of social consequences of that. And maybe maybe they didn't care so much about the social consequences but they definitely cared about the really ill and small soldiers who <laughs> were going into the army because of that. And then there's the attempt to kind of regulate, regulate gin. So Gin is kind of, is try to be controlled and then they attempt to prohibit us and then they attempt to liberalize the beer markets to give an alternative to gin. And then they try to control the beer markets and they bring gin back and you get this kind That's of wild.
1: <laughs> That's wild.
0: Yeah. And it's, but I think it's a very common story. Like when we think about our policy, I mean, think about what's happening with kind of marijuana and cannabis at the moment in North America, where it's a crazy story of the beginning of the 20th century, where you know it's possible to consume, and then it's prohibited, and then you have a huge panic and kind of concern over it, and then it becomes kind of tolerated to an extent, and then it becomes legalized, and now we have kind of major beer companies who have kind of huge investments in the cannabis industry, and it's going to become as big business as the alcohol industry now. It's the same kind of story of I think um, of kind of rapid changes from kind of regulation to deregulation, to prohibition to liberalization. And I'm going on a bit of a tangent now, I apologize, but that that's the idea of subversion because you have states controlling but also decontrolling consumption and it creates a very kind of like very unsettled, confused atmosphere where the ritual life of the community becomes really kind of ripped apart because in order to kind of have a ritual that structures consumption, it takes generations for that to come into being. And, you know, it takes a small amount of years to destroy us, right? And I think this is what you see with, with states. And as I was saying, the case of Russia is a very kind of classic example of that because um, the history of alcohol in Russia is the history of revenue maximization. The state attempts through kind of state-controlled drinking establishments, ultimately through having a vodka monopoly, which became the ground that the state really, really um, sat on. That the revenue from alcohol and vodka um, funded its kind of military expeditions and its expansions, but at the same time, this undermined the legitimacy of the state very badly because the idea of State being, it's really a drug dealer. This isn't very good for PR. Mm-hmm. Which Russia introducing prohibition very early in 1914, um, and sponsoring temperance movements. State sponsored temperance movements, but then this resulted in critics being, you know, in a very controlled society. It allowed kind of criticism of the state, which undermined the state. The prohibition took away the revenue that the state had rested on which undermined the state um, the state machinery because the funding was taken away and ultimately resulted in, I think, not resulted in completely, but it's a big part of the story of the collapse of Tsarist Russia. And then when we look at the USSR, it's the same story again, because Gorbachev did exactly the same thing. So, I mean, Russia is a very, very good example of how alcohol is used exploitatively to maximize revenue. But then again, like in the gin epidemics, of the 18th century, where the state then gets afraid, tries to roll back from that, attempts to kind of re-regulate consumption, then goes back to deregulating it, yeah, and it ends, you're just left with a mess.
1: Uh, yeah, a muddled mess, and I'm trying to work through it in the, in the contemporary world right now. And so I have to ask: uh, so, what are some of the stories or some of the the big issues that you're tracking? You've got all this background I mean what are the alcohol uh, front page news that, that you're following
0: well, yeah and yeah I mean we're going through kind of a, in Ireland anyway we're going through a moment of, of we've gone through a long period of like deregulation of the alcohol industry um, where we in the early part of the 20th century and the mid 20th century it was quite a paternalistic regulation of alcohol and um, And then this was really kind of, people began to become tired of that. And then we went through a long phase of liberalization where the sale of alcohol became easier and easier and easier. And consumption increases many, many times over because of that. And now we're going through a moment of kind of public health. And we have some kind of public health legislation coming in, which is making advertising more difficult. And it's making the kind of sale of more difficult
1: so there's pricing policies,
0: Pardon me? are there pricing policies going on? And there is talk about introducing minimum pricing. So the Scotland has done that, and there's a desire to follow that. But it, it, we're in this kind of moment right now where it's difficult, where the lobby power of the alcohol industry is is very high, but at the same time there's kind of significant parties, well, middle strength parties that. Are vested in alcohol control, and I'm interested in that because you know it is is it it is interesting to think about how that will succeed because you know I wouldn't obviously be against public health policies in any way, and you would have to be cynical about the alcohol industry and its motives. And but I suppose a lesson that I would be trying to put across in my book is that again there has to be an extra part of the conversation, which is that you know you can't just. Solve well. You're never going to solve the problem, but you can't just limit the problem through um, limiting access and by educational campaigns and information campaigns. I think we really have to think about how do we create kind of a framework, a social framework in our society, which supports people in drinking because you know there's far too much emphasis on individual self-control and individual regulation that comes from the alcohol industry itself, but it also comes from the for the public health and public public health movements. And also on the other hand, the kind of just the social policies of regulating access, there's sort of like a, an absence there because it's, it's purely kind of negative without kind of like a positive idea of what is good consumption.
1: And you talk about super pubs, which is a term I hadn't heard before, to be honest. Oh. And, um, some of the backdrop when you talk about super pubs uh, is neoliberalism uh, and so essentially what's the role uh, of the sort of some of these larger alcohol consortiums
0: yeah I mean it's 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 enormous and um, I'm not sure what the situation is I presume it's the same in Canada the United States but in Ireland and the United Kingdom and um, you know, we, the last, say, 25, 30 years, we've been looking at this kind of major change in cities. It's, it's often using the term like the nighttime economy, where you get, you know, hubcos, big chain bars, and they move into the city centers. The city centers have become much more like drinking waters. And this has been kind of a way of like reviving cities. And like you mentioned the word like neoliberalism there, and I don't know if I should unpack that. Should I?
1: Yeah, if you want, yeah.
0: Like neoliberalism is, I suppose, the idea that you take back some kind of public spending by the government. So public supports can stand behind, you know, health and education institutions and, you know, automatically kind of stand behind cities that maybe are doing as successfully as other cities. And instead, the idea is that people and regions should stand at their own two feet. And this it has put... Uh, it's put many cities in a very difficult position. So one of my research interests is a city in Ireland, which is one of the kind of less rich cities in in Ireland. And it's very similar to what's been happening in the UK and other anglo saxon countries where, if you look at the UK, you've got like the north of England, which has been kind of quite hard hit by deindustrialization. The question is, what do you do, right? And I think one thing that can be done is that there's a Keynesian solution. So Paul and John are Keynes. And what you do is you pump in public money. Maybe that's not very popular everywhere, but you pump in public money. So for example, you have good hospitals, you have good education, and that kind of creates demand and it keeps the economy afloat. Kind of, you know, reboots the economy. But the strategy that has been has been used in many places is that it's been based on how do we foster consumption and it's been more focused on expanding the service economy so a major part of that has been the alcohol business because you know nothing succeeds like alcohol <laughs> i mean if you want to revive the city center oftentimes when you look at the policy documents they talk about cultural quarters so we're going to have like opera we're going to have cappuccinos and all of these great things but let's face it <laughs> it's not going to work what really drags people into the city is is alcohol so we've seen this kind of—that's my interest, I think—in in super pubs and how it's linked with neoliberalism. Is that we've seen in the in the contemporary period, I think, something of kind of like going back to maybe what I was talking about in the early modern state. I mean, not as extreme, but is that as the state has kind of desired to become smaller, which is, which is the goal of neoliberalism, it's actually become more reliant on alcohol again than it was. In, in, in earlier periods because this has been the way you, kind of a very common strategy for how to re-stimulate cities that have been struggling
1: So I have to ask, uh, it just occurred to me, you have the uh, proliferation of micro breweries and uh, essentially the, the anti-super pub uh, So how does this fit into the narrative?
0: Yeah, I mean, God, I'll have to go on a long walk now to Bring this in, but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose, yeah. I mean, the alcohol industry became so concentrated that the offering became a bit alienating and overwhelming to to the population at large. And um, I mean, I I would see kind of craft worries as being very much based in you know, status competition between people. You know, it's obviously of conspicuous consumption, where you need to develop. You know, certain mm. abilities to drink extremely bitter, <laughs> averse of things some people's tastes. And it's, you know, a way of establishing distinction. So, yeah, I mean, how it links with, with the super pubs, I mean, I think it goes alongside that because you have, you know, the massification of culture on the one hand. So, you know, you go back, well, still today, but you go back two decades, you have a huge concentration in the America alcohol industry um, and then alongside that what that produces is this desire for distinction and to be distant from the herd and somehow more knowledgeable and, and superior to them. I think it's actually quite interesting how the the mainstream alcohol industry then begins to imitate the proud breweries because I mean I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the American beer scene but if you look at the Diageo which is Guinness is the big drink in Ireland which is really mm-hmm. Which is under the agio, and you know they have these lines of craft beers, which is you know imitating the crafts ethos. So it, it's even kind of quite difficult to know when you're drinking a craft beer, is it even a craft beer at all? But I mean, I think yeah, this is this is part of the kind of the, the, the competitive logic, also I would say of of neoliberalism of a neoliberal society because as we become more individualized the way that we gain our identity is really through conspicuous consumption and it's through yeah types of connoisseurship and i think yeah um for at least consumers craft beers are part of that i must say though i do quite like craft beers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just interesting the dichotomy between the two and so i just have to ask and yeah. uh it's almost like uh, the Reformation, isn't
0: it? It's where you have the Catholic Church, and then you get the the craft breweries are like the Protestant
1: reforms churches, and it's an ongoing. I so... don't, I don't want to touch that. Sorry, I'm, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna back away from that one. <laughs> John, can you tell us about the next project that you have on the go?
0: Yeah. So, um, what I'm really interested in now is um, the link between alcohol and creativity. So, um. We've been talking about the nighttime economy there and we've been talking about neoliberalism and I've been being quite interested in like cities and how, you know, bars, nightclubs, downtown, nightlife areas are being used to kind of revitalize city centers. And it's a part of the thinking there is, you know, creative city thinking, where it's about creating these kind of hit, cool creative scenes that are linked with, with with nightlife. And what I've been looking at recently is and the link between real artists and their own drinking and their own really drinking problems so you know Ireland is very famous for its novelists and its novelists are very famous for their significant alcohol problems and I've been working on James Joyce a lot recently and James Joyce had you know really significant alcohol problems but also his his art and his creative process was very linked with the, the scenes of intoxication that he was a part of. And I'm really interested in the link between the two. Um, and it's really because, well, not be- only because, but when we think about kind of the contemporary thinking about creativity and nightlife, it's really presented in a very kind of positive way. But it's really interesting when you look at it historically that these scenes are often, they produce stunning works, you know, real works of genius. But... The scenes themselves and the individual lives are, like, really quite depressing and nihilistic. And the historical periods they're associated with are kind of depressing and sad as well. I mean, Ireland in the early 20th century, in the mid-20th century, they're really not good places and times to live. Um, so it's, it's a very bildungs connection. And I just, I haven't really got it completely worked out yet, but I'm trying to relate that to the presence. And how we're trying to produce kind of creativity and creative nightlife and um, and i suppose my question would be is it an inherently ambivalence thing can it just be kind of nice and clean and positive or is there an inherent ambivalence and negativity there it's
1: a really topical and cool project i can't wait to read it